This is history for the future. What we can learn from the TRC with Pippa Green. Reverend Bongani Finka is a Presbyterian minister who led the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in the Eastern Cape. Before his appointment to the TRC in 1995, he was a minister in Tsolo in the Transkei for a decade. He studied at the Fort Hare Theological Seminary and also ran the historic Lovedale printing press there for about 10 years. Lovedale Press, established by missionaries in 1861, was the earliest printer and promoter of African, particularly Isikosa literature and historic works. Born in Mpendli in what is now KwaZulu-Natal in 1953, Finca played a central role in the transition from apartheid to democracy in the early 1990s, becoming the transitional administrator of the old apartheid Bantustan of the Siskai. All that was required was that they should just disclose what had happened, and it must be politically motivated, it must be within the period, and it must disclose the full truth. Once that has been met, there was no need really for remorse. There was no prescription that they must be remorseful. He was also an executive member of the South African Council of Churches. He is currently a commissioner of the Independent Electoral Commission and heads its East London office. When I met him, the building that houses the IEC offices was in the throes of major renovations, so we apologise for the sounds of drilling and hammering in the background. I asked him how he had felt about his appointment to the TRC in 1995. We had uh, done a lot of campaigning for the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. You remember that there was extensive consultation on how to deal with the atrocities of the past. And uh, the, the, the churches in particular were very vocal in calling for the establishment of a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. So having been involved in those discussions uh, about the need for a Truth Commission, when I was approached that the Council of Churches wanted to nominate me, um, I, I readily agreed. But of course, no one knew exactly uh, what it is that you were agreeing to. Uh, we were only surprised later about the intensity of the work that had to be done in the Truth Commission. But yes, uh, I considered it a great honour when I was nominated, and I accepted, readily accepted, and the church uh, to which I belong uh, supported enthusiastically. The TRC chose to start its human rights violations hearing in the Eastern Cape, right here in East London, where Finca still lives. I asked why the Eastern Cape was chosen. I think it was an area that had carried uh, quite a, a big slice of, of pain arising out of the conflict of the past. And there was a, a decision that the first hearing then should be held here. I mean, as a person who was leading that process in the Eastern Cape then, I saw it also as a recognition of the contribution that the Eastern Cape had made obviously to the reconciliation process through uh, the fact that Nelson Mandela came from Kunu, not very far from here, and a number of, of the leaders uh, of the now governing party at the time, uh, Oliver Tambo, but also from other parties, 
including Steve Biko comes not very far from here. Robert Sobukwe um, comes from Alice, also not very far from here. Oh yes, Beas Nodi, although he was associated with Johannesburg, he came from, from this province. So there was a recognition of the contribution in terms of the leadership of the country that this province had made. Why was it that the conflict in the Eastern Cape was so intense? It dates back to the frontier wars, uh, long before the advent of apartheid itself. The frontier wars that were fought here and the resistance that was, great resistance that was um, undertaken by the, mainly the traditional leaders, but uh, also other people uh, against um, a colonial rule. That was long before the period that we were going to look at in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. But I think it's a recognition of the fact that the Eastern Cape has long been an amphitheater of struggle, uh, in a sense. But in the period that we were to look at as as the Truth Commission, uh, of course, the Eastern Cape had also played a critical role. And you could see from uh, the number of people who came up as as victims and the stories that we had to do in the Eastern Cape here, the stretching almost throughout the province from the Pondoland area uh, with the Pondo revolt that was there, uh, right up to the the western side of the Eastern Cape, Port Elizabeth area and, and etc. So there were a number of uh, cases that arose out of this region that needed to be looked at uh, by the Truth Commission. When you look back on the work of the Truth Commission now, what, what did you feel were its greatest strengths? What did you feel that the Truth Commission achieved? Breaking the silence. There is a sense in which the Truth Commission just came up as a bang and all of a sudden, things that were whispered on some corners and never acknowledged and never spoken of openly. All of a sudden, people, I'm not talking about celebrities of, of our struggle, that, that is the names that are well known. I'm talking about people in remote areas uh, of the province, uh, Uh, names that had never been heard of before. All of a sudden, those stories came up and, uh, and, and the silence was broken. And people spoke of things that they had never spoken of in their, in their entire lives. And all of a sudden, the, the box or the, the balloon almost just exploded and everything just came out. Even those of us who thought we knew what had happened during the period uh, of apartheid um, and the entire period of oppression, uh, those of us who thought they were involved we were just so shocked when we got to release people and allow a platform for them to speak and speak freely about things that had happened to them. Can you think of one example from an ordinary person in the Eastern Cape that struck you most forcefully? For me, the event that took place in uh, Lusigisigi, 
which dealt with the massacre that had taken place there. It's called the Moza Massacre. And there you, you dealt with mainly majority of people who could not even read or write, coming from deep rural area, standing up in a platform and relating what had happened and, and what had happened to their loved ones, what had happened to them uh, in that period. Um, and I think a chapter which, which was not known really to many of us, but which was real because it had happened and it affected so many people. That testimony, given in March 1997, was about the incident that came to be known as the Ponderland Revolt in 1960. The uprising of the Impondo people was a milestone in the struggle against apartheid and the impending imposition of Bantustans. The people from the villages around Lusikisiki were unhappy about the imposition of a tax on their cattle. They were unhappy about having to carry passes and they were unhappy with the role of the chiefs. As one victim, Clement Ketlana Klabu, put it, there was also this thing of Bantu education which we were against. And they wanted to be represented in the Cape Town Parliament, as they called it, and not in the Transkei homeland. After a long and fruitless struggle to engage the local magistrate and chiefs about their grievances, the community gathered near Nkuza Hill. Police sent helicopters, some of which sprayed tear gas. Others deposited armed police. Extracts of the testimony of Mr. Kabu to the TRC is read by EWN reporter Kolani Goyana. When these helicopters came, we were asking ourselves as to what we should do peacefully to continue with the gathering. We took a pillar and put a white cloth around it, demonstrating in a form of a white flag that we wanted peace. We were trying to show them that a white flag was symbolizing peace. Four police stood around us. When they were about 100 meters from us, we decided that we should sit down and only one person should talk. We thought that they'd come to us. They had huge machine guns. We used to call these machine guns Duludulu. Police also shot down on the crowd from the helicopters. According to an article by historian Sukudi Matoti and Lungisile and Sebeza, 11 were killed that day and 60 seriously wounded. Nearly 5,000 people, including Mr. Glaber, were detained and tortured. Some were convicted of beating people suspected to be informers and of killing a chief and his headman. At least 21 were executed. Requests for post-mortems of those killed by the police were refused, and the Durban-based lawyer for the Impondo people, Roly Arenstein, was banned and forbidden to enter the Transkei. The case was later taken up by the young attorney, Albie Sachs, who was to become one of the first constitutional court judges in the democratic government. The Impondo revolt marked the start of three decades of increasing repression and also a schism in the rural areas between chiefs who supported the new homeland governments and local people. In our history, the chiefs had a big role to play in leading the battles of the land, but as time went on, the chiefs became separated from the people and walked to their own path. If the strengths of the TRC were recalling the forgotten voices of past suffering, what, I asked Finke, did it not do? Of course, the most glaring uh, shortcoming in the whole concept of Truth and Reconciliation Commission is the differential that was made between those who were perpetrators, how easy it became for them because all that was required was that they should just disclose what had happened and it must be politically motivated 
It must be within the period, and it must disclose the full truth. Once that has been met, there was no need really for remorse. There was no prescription that they must be remorseful. And then on the basis of that, they, they get amnesty. So it means what they had done gets expunged from the record. They are able to start on a clean slate. When you compare that with the victims, the requirement for the victims uh, was that, uh, of course, they should also comply with the period, etc. They must disclose the truth, etc., etc., etc. But there is nothing that we were able to show as a benefit to the victims at the end of our term as a commission. The, the policy on reparation uh, was prepared uh, by the commission, by the TRC, and submitted uh, to the president. And of course, the matter then got out of our hands. And for a long period after our work as the Truth Commission had completed, when you met victims on the street and they asked you what has become of us as the victims of, of, of atrocities. You convened us in these halls, you asked us questions on what needs to be done to not compensate, but to do something uh, just to symbolically show that an injustice was done. We lost loved ones. People disappeared and we don't know where they are. And when you met people at the end of the term of the commission and they asked you those questions, it became very painful because you had nothing to show. You had nothing. You just said, we prepared a report. We submitted it to the, the government uh, through the president. And, and, and that's, where, that's where it ended. And you still had opposition from both the National Party and the ANC government when you handed in your report for various reasons. That was very interesting, in, in that uh, we had opposition for different reasons from two groups. But of course, I think the, the fact that uh, the, the president at the time, Nelson Mandela, rose above that and was able to come and receive the report and to thank the commission for the work that it had done. It did at the end make you feel that there was a recognition of the work that was done by the TRC. I asked whether he thought it may be unfair to have judged the violations on the part of the ANC in the same manner as the violations of the apartheid government, which in a sense was the reason for the intensifying conflict. It took me time to be persuaded on the importance of the even-handedness of the Commission when it comes to human rights violations. But um, as a person who had been an activist myself, as a person who had suffered, I tended to be subjective. But we, we were lucky to have in the leadership of the commission a person like Desmond Tutu, a person like Alex Borain, who were able to sort of assist those of us who were a bit more militant and uh, perhaps even extreme in a sense. To understand that human rights violations are human rights violations, irrespective of who the perpetrator is. Of course, the main cause of the conflict was the policies that were followed under apartheid, and indeed the major perpetrator in that conflict was the state. 
and uh, the preponderance of cases uh, where the state then had to come in as amnesty seekers. And um, the liberation movement came mainly as victims, representative of victims, arose out of the reality of, of what we had lived through. Looking at the state of reconciliation today, is there anything he regrets the Truth Commission could not or did not do? In response, he speaks about his experiences with the Peruvian Truth Commission. We were invited by the Truth Commission as it began to close its processes. And it convened a broad consultation with a number of key players that were identified by that commission as the people who will take forward the work of the commission after it had presented the support. And they established that smooth handover. Of course, the report of the commission went to the government and there was a responsibility for the government uh, uh, on things that the government needed to do. But the Peruvian Commission emphasized this thing of civil society taking on the responsibility beyond the commission. And I thought, I thought um, looking back at, at the work that we did, I think that um, although we were, we were emphasizing that the work that the Truth Commission is doing is is just the beginning of a process and not an end in itself. But I regret the fact that there was less extensive interaction uh, with the people who were going to inherit that work and take it forward after the, the commission's term had come to an end. Who were those people? Yes, a good question. I don't know exactly. I would say that uh, people like uh, churches who have a vested interest in the work of reconciliation in terms of uh, its own theology, but human rights activists who have a vested interest in making sure that the human rights violations that took place never happen again. But the general public, let's say perhaps people who are concerned about things that had happened in business, things that happened in the universities, things that had happened in the media, things that had happened in the church itself. Those activists who were aware of the structural issues that contributed to the atrocities of the past, to the committal of those violations. So that when we say that what we saw in the Truth Commission, what got unearthed in the Truth Commission, never again happens in our country. It needed the continuous agitation or continuous work uh, by those who were committed to the kind of values that we wanted to see developed arising out of uh, what, we had, what we had unearthed in the TRC. I asked Reverend Finkler what lessons from the Truth Commission could be brought to bear on the apparent violations of human rights today by arms of the state the shootings at Marikana, for example, or the killing of Mira Masia, the Mozambican taxi driver who was handcuffed behind a police van and dragged through the streets. The recommendations that were made, because the commission did the investigations, public hearings, made findings, and then made recommendations to the nation. And undergirding those recommendations is that South Africa must never again go the route 
that lead to the kinds of violations that we saw in the Truth Commission. And that was, that was to be the lasting legacy of the TRC, where South Africa would not again see the kinds of things that we saw uh, as a result of the TRC being uh, unearthing the violations. We were hoping that the kind of police that would emerge in South Africa would be so different. Having experienced the, the policing uh, processes of apartheid, you know, the, the, the kind of life in, in the business sector, the relations between the workers and their employers, having experienced what we experienced in the Truth Commission and having condemned what that process condemned, you expected that we will be a shining light in the world in the manner in which we do things so differently so that those kinds of things that we saw uh, come out in our hearings would never again be spoken of in South Africa today. But there's been a disjuncture, he says, and when the TRC closed, it looked like the project of making South Africa a fundamentally different one also closed. One shortcoming may be that the recommendations of the TRC were not consistently implemented, he says. But could there perhaps have been more work done to reconstruct people's economic chances in the post-apartheid era? One of the most important hearings in terms of the sector hearings that we had, in my view, was that one where we had a, a hearing of the business centre. And I think a number of recommendations of the TRC dealt with this issue of saying, can there be reconciliation really if South Africa remain as economically divided or remain in an apartheid state which is now not perhaps just colour but economic apartheid? The recommendations of the TRC say clearly It's a pipe dream, he says, to believe that there could be national unity and reconciliation unless the economics of the country make this possible. There was a story that we used to be told uh, quite quite often and it used to, to me, exemplified uh, uh, this reality when we said, if a person steals a cow, person A steals a cow from person B and keep it and milk it and benefit from it, And then somewhere in the process, they come to the TRC and and talk about reconciliation. And um, they cry together, they do all the things that happened in the TRC together. And they commit to being reconciled. And if that person who had a cow stolen from him ends that process by saying... uh, by the way, we have now reconciled, and what about the cow? And the person who had stolen the cow gets angry and say, this process is not about the cow, it's about reconciliation. Can there be reconciliation between those people? I mean, the status quo remains. Is there not a way that we can breed more cows? It could be. But until the subject of the cow is discussed openly and frankly, instead of it being uh, dealt with, as not belonging to the agenda of reconciliation. Unless it is central to the agenda of reconciliation, then reconciliation uh, continues to become a myth. 
But it is not only in the arena of economics that the country needs to seek reconciliation. I think it permeates all areas, area of education, in the area of health care, all these areas that we looked at, including the area that I belong to in the area of the church. The church itself, as it looked at the TRC implications for the church, is the church structured in such a way that it reflects what the TRC uh, had in mind. And unless you have got these various attempts to appropriate the TRC thinking or the TRC dogma into, into the life of the nation in these areas, then the TRC is not, is not actually influencing the direction of the nation as much as we thought that it would. I ask him about the state of governance in the country today and whether it reflects the values of the TRC. Perhaps I'll sound like a broken record because I will keep on calling for a, a strong interaction with the recommendations that are made in the TRC report. The reports have been given, it's somewhere gathering dust, and it came at a great cost. I'm not talking about just the financial cost of, of maintaining uh, the TRC, but I'm talking about the emotional cost to those victims who came there, opened their hearts out, and, and expose themselves and their deeper inner feelings. Uh, that, that is priceless. But there has been, in my view, no attempt to really, really look at those recommendations that the TRC has put forward. And the project of reconciliation we will remain a polarized nation, we will remain a polarized country, and we will do things, perhaps now being done by the majority to, in that perhaps now we have a majority government, but we will continue to do things in a manner that victimizes the poorest of the poor, that victimizes those who, who are unfortunate not to be in the inner circle of power, unless we unlearn the habits that apartheid taught us. And I thought the, the Truth Commission was an attempt at saying what lessons can we draw out of the painful experience that we have gone through so that we never again repeat those things. Whether we are black or white, whether we are a majority, minority, whether we are rich, poor, but we learn that we must never again treat each other in the manner in which we have done in that period. I asked whether the institutions born through constitutional democracy were not strong enough to prevent the country reverting to the state it was once in. Reverend Finker says the institutions depend on the strength of civil society itself. If society is not strong, institutions on their own will, <laughs> will get tired of always trying to defend their terrain. The institutions require to be defended by civil society itself. Can he identify the biggest challenges facing a country, one that he describes as once being able to mesmerise other parts of the world? I think the first need is to deal with the, with the scandal of poverty in, in a country where there is so much uh, resources to deal with that. I think the second issue uh, for me is the, the question of continued uh, racism 
it might not be in the statute books now, but it continues to live uh, in, in, in our society. I would say, I don't know how to put this, uh, but just my disappointment at how, I think uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu said, would say how we have become just ordinary. I just had this expectation that we would, we would become an example to, to the world of how, of how not to do things, of what not to do, I mean, how not to order our lives, and how we've just, uh, we've just become ordinary. That was Reverend Bongani Finka, interviewed in East London on the 4th of August 2015. I'm Pippa Green in Cape Town. Thanks to Kolani Goyana for the additional narration. Produced by Jean-Michel, and thanks to the Cape Town Youth Choir for the use of their musical performance of Senzani Na. You've just listened to History for the Future, What We Can Learn from the TRC. Keep listening for more insights into the state of reconciliation in South Africa, then and now.